Matthew chapter 23, and I'm going to read this chapter from the New English Bible. Matthew chapter 23. Jesus then addressed the people and his disciples in these words. The doctors of the Lord and the Pharisees sit in the chair of Moses. Therefore, do what they tell you. Pay attention to their words. But do not follow their practice. For they say one thing and do another. They make up heavy packs and pile them on men's shoulders but will not raise a finger to lift the load themselves. Whatever they do is done for show. They go about with broad phylacteries and wear deep fringes on their robes. They like to have places of honor at feasts and the chief seats in synagogues, to be greeted respectfully in the street and to be addressed as rabbi. But you must not be called rabbi. For you have one rabbi, and you are all brothers. Do not call any man on earth father, for you have one father, and he is in heaven. Nor must you be called teacher. You have one teacher, the Messiah. The greatest among you must be your servant, for whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever, wh whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Alas, alas for you lawyers and Pharisees, hypocrites that you are, you shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. You do not enter yourselves, and when others are entering, you stop them. Alas for you lawyers and Pharisees, hypocrites, you eat up the property of widows while you say long prayers for appearance's sake. You will receive the severest sentence. Alas for you lawyers and Pharisees, hypocrites, you travel over sea and land to win one convert, and when you have won him, you make him twice as fit for hell as you are yourselves. Alas for you blind guides, you say, if a man swears by the sanctuary, that is nothing, but if he swears by the gold in the sanctuary, he is bound by his oath. Blind fool. Which is the more important, the gold or the sanctuary which sanctifies the gold? Or you say, if a man swears by the altar, that is nothing. But if he swears by the offering that lies on the altar, he is bound by his oath. What blindness? Which is the more important, the offering or the altar which sanctifies it? To swear by the altar then is to swear both by the altar and by whatever lies on it. To swear by the sanctuary is to swear both by the sanctuary and by him who dwells there. And to swear by heaven is to swear both by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Alas for you lawyers and Pharisees, hypocrites, you pay tithes of mint and dill and cumin, but you have overlooked the weightier demands of the law, justice, mercy and good faith. It is these you should have practiced without neglecting the others. Blind guides, you strain off a midge, yet gulp down a camel. 
Alas for you lawyers and Pharisees, hypocrites, you clean the outside of the cup and dish, which you have filled inside by robbery and self-indulgence, blind Pharisee, clean the inside of the cup first, then the outside will be clean also. Alas for you lawyers and Pharisees, hypocrites, you are like tombs covered with whitewash. They look well from outside, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all kinds of filth. So it is with you. Outside you look like honest men, but inside you are brimful of hypocrisy and crime. Alas for you lawyers and Pharisees, hypocrites. You build up the tombs of the prophets and embellish the monuments of the saints. And you say, if we had been alive in our father's time, we should never have taken part with them in the murder of the prophets. So you acknowledge that you are the sons of the men who killed the prophets. Go on then, finish off what your fathers began. You snakes, you vipers brood, how can you escape being condemned to hell? I send you therefore prophets, sages and teachers, some of them you will kill and crucify, others you will flog in your synagogues and hound from city to city, and so on you will fall the guilt of all the innocent blood spilt on the ground, from innocent Abel to Zechariah son of Barakiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Believe me, this generation will bear the guilt of it all. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that murders the prophets and stones the messengers sent to her. How often have I longed to gather your children as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you would not let me. Look, look, there is your temple forsaken by God, and I tell you, you shall never see me until the time when you say blessings on him who comes in the name of the Lord. Now the last uh, evening that we had um, uh, a study on the Gospel according to Matthew, we broke off in the middle of a subdivision. Uh, we were um, dealing with this fourth subdivision of the third main one, the realization of the kingdom to be through Calvary, and the subdivision was characteristics of the kingdom of heaven from verse 1 of chapter 18 to the 34th verse of chapter 20. That's what we were dealing with. And on your seat you have each one got a copy of the notes from that evening. It was a very important study in many ways because it contains the fourth discourse um, out of the five contained in the Gospel according to Matthew. Now, I'm going to leave you read through the notes yourself. Uh, you will see we've dealt with heaven's estimate of true greatness, which is childlikeness and single-mindedness and a refusal to disregard or belittle any child of God. And then we have dealt with the matter of the unity of believers, because that is a characteristic of the kingdom of heaven. It's absolute unity. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father 
of all. Absolute unity. The unity of the spirit which we have. We don't attain to. We have it and we are to preserve it. And a very large portion of this uh, um, uh, subdivision was is taken up with warnings about unity, the unity of, the, of us believers, and the procedure that we should follow when that unity breaks down, the breakdown in human relationships. We have um, the story of Peter saying, well, how many times should I forgive? And the Lord says, 490 times. 490 times you are to forgive a brother or a sister when they sin against you which really means that it's beyond you and me. I don't know anyone who could naturally forgive 490 times. Um, that means that we have to look to the Lord for divine help and divine grace. And, of course, we've got some parables there. Now, that's where we ended last week, the parable of the unjust steward who owed the Lord something, owed his master something in the region of about four million pounds and uh, he was forgiven the debt instead of being thrown into prison and then he met one of the smaller servants who owed him seven pounds and he had him put in prison uh, because he wouldn't pay it and the Lord says uh, when the master heard about that he put the other man back into prison. The man who'd been given for the, the debt of four million pounds, he put him back into prison and left him there till he could pay every single bit. Now it's an extraordinary thing that in the Lord's Prayer we are told, we pray, we're taught to pray, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive them the trespass against us. In other words, we are only forgiven as we forgive others. And it is even more emphasized, if you look in that chapter, the one thing the Lord took out of that pattern prayer and emphasized was that he said, if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father in heaven forgive you. So forgiveness, which comes from divine love and mercy, um, is in fact all important in the maintenance of unity. Well, now, this evening we come to chapter 19, verse 1, and I want to move as um, swiftly as we can over the last part of this section to do with the characteristics of the kingdom. From verse 1 of chapter 19 to verse 19 of chapter 20. And I have entitled this, Sacrifice for the Sake of the Kingdom of Heaven sacrifice for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. This is another one of the characteristics of the kingdom. Where the kingdom is really present and men and women, Christians, have seen the significance of the kingdom, they are prepared to make sacrifices for the kingdom. In other words, borrowing a phrase from the Apostle Paul, they do not look upon their light afflictions, which are but for a moment, but they look upon that eternal and exceeding weight of glory, uh, which is to be uh, revealed. Now, the actual discourse ends with verse 1 of chapter 19, with the little formula, 
And it came to pass when Jesus had finished these words. That's the formula that Matthew uses um, to point out to us, to uh, denote that the discourse is concluded. But he has added quite a lot more material uh, which is on the same theme. This whole section deals with sacrifice, sacrificial devotion and sacrificial service as one of the characteristics of the kingdom of heaven. Now the kingdom of God is not served by human might or by intellectual power. It is served by sacrificial devotion. It is far more important to the Lord that there is in you a spirit of sacrificial love and service to him and to the church and to the world than that you have a great knowledge and a great education. A great education and uh, knowledge are things that God can use once he's got spiritual character behind them. But God would prefer, if he has to choose between alternatives, God would prefer that there was in you a spirit of sacrificial love and service than that there was great human powers and abilities. For God can use such a spirit of sacrificial devotion. That's why after that tremendous letter, um, the Roman letter, when Paul takes us all the way over the sin and the evil of mankind and then shows us the Lord Jesus Christ dying for our sins and then deals with our self-life and then he goes on to God's great election, his, his, for his great um, um, counsel and will that lies behind everything that is created. Finally, he sums it all up in chapter 12, verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your spiritually intelligent worship. That's why he sums the whole thing up. It's no good just being justified. It's no good just being sanctified. It's no good just being a Christian. It's no good knowing that God has chosen you from before the foundation of the world in Christ unless you are prepared to present your body a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God. That is your spiritually intelligent worship. That's what it should lead to. That's the thing God looks for in every single one of us, from the youngest to the eldest. Christ himself has led the way in this. He has presented his body as a living sacrifice for us. He laid down his life for us. He laid down his life for the whole world. He has given himself as the greatest example of sacrifice sacrificial love and service in the whole, uh, the whole history of mankind. Now, if you and I would follow the Lord Jesus to the throne, and make no mistake about it, you may feel that you are just a poor little ugly bit of flesh and blood, 
And you may think that you are wholly insignificant and worthless, valueless. But if God has saved you, he has nothing less than the throne of his son in view. He wants to get you to the throne as the Lord Jesus has come to the throne. And it is a wonderful thing that the Lord Jesus says himself in the book of Revelation, I will grant that they shall sit down with me in my throne. How can you and I reach the throne? How can you and I reach the crown? Because a crown is promised to us, a crown of righteousness. A crown for those who love his appearing. A crown or many other um, crowns are promised to us. Um, I don't uh, necessarily think that we shall have an actual crown. But the idea is that we shall be crowned. And crowned people have position and authority. That's the idea. Now, how will you get to the throne? And how will you get the crown? You will get to the throne and you will get the crown exactly the same way the Lord Jesus came to the throne and got the crown. Through the cross. The only way you and I can come there is through sacrificial love and sacrificial service. We have to, in the end, come face to face with the biggest decision you and I can make as Christians. And that is, we must lose our lives in order to find them. And we can talk and we can talk and we can talk and we can sing and we can sing and we can sing and we can, well, a lot of other things we can do. But unless you and I come to that decision and face squarely this matter of whether we're prepared to lose our lives, we'll never come to the throne. However many hymns we sing or however many books we read or however much prayer we indulge in, we shall never come to the throne and we shall never come to the crown. Now in this section, the Pharisees ask a question. It's a test question. You will find it in verses 1 to 12. And it is all about marriage. It is extraordinary that it is this that, Lee, that introduces the whole subject of sacrificial love and service. But it is about marriage. They ask a question to trip the Lord up. They say um, about marriage here, trying him, is it lawful for a man to put away his wife? In other words, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And, uh, and the Lord Jesus lays down the divine principle in marriage, which is that two, two people are no longer separate people but become one. And therefore he says, except for unfaithfulness or unchastity, marriage uh, is for as long as life shall last. This is the principle he lays down. There is, however, a very important point I want you to underline, those of you who are too far on the legal side. The Lord said, except for unfaithfulness. And once there has been one single exception granted, you must understand that there is the possibility of divorce. Now they take this thing up immediately with the Lord. And they say, oh well, uh, if this is the case, why did Moses allow it? Why did Moses allow it to be such a free thing? And he says, Moses allowed it because of the hardness of your heart, or I think Phillips puts it, because you didn't know how to love. That's why. 
Now this section actually is here to introduce another matter, which is the whole matter of sacrificial love and service. We find it in verse, especially verse 11. Not all men can receive this saying, but they to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs that were so born from their mother's womb, there are eunuchs that were made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs that have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He that is able to receive it, let him receive it. In other words, this whole matter, this question of the Pharisees, introduces us straight away into this matter of sacrifice, for the kingdom of heaven's sake. Now, the, the history of the church is filled with cases of people who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. They have gone to the far corners of the earth, laying aside all thought of their own satisfaction, the satisfaction of their own soul life, of their own flesh life, and have committed themselves without condition to the Lord, have laid down their lives in its entirety. And because of that, there has been a mighty harvest all over this world. It is sacrifice for the kingdom of heaven's sake. Now, the Lord himself understood that this was a very hard saying and would raise a lot of questions and would not be, and, and, and many people would not be able to take it. And that's exactly what he says. Not all men can receive this saying. What wisdom there is in that. Not everyone can. But the Lord has put it here and he ends up the little section by saying, let him that is able to receive it receive it. Then we have uh, in verse 13 and 15 a re-emphasis again upon childlikeness. It's extraordinary how we come back to this again and again in this whole subdivision. Childlikeness is one of the characteristics of the kingdom of heaven. He says, suffer the little children, forbid them not to come unto me, for to such belongeth the kingdom of heaven. In other words, the kingdom of heaven, the characteristic of the kingdom of heaven is the simplicity of a child, the trustfulness of a child, the dependence of uh, a child. Uh, we then, if you go on from verse 16 to verse 30, we have the story of the rich young ruler, and it is followed by the rather astonished and amazed questioning of the disciples. You remember the rich young ruler came to the Lord and he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And the Lord Jesus um, said uh, to him um, that uh, had he kept the law? And the young man said, yes, I have kept the law. Then the Lord Jesus said to him, then go and sell all that you have and come follow me and you shall have treasure in heaven now some of us have not got possessions uh, that are worth selling uh, in other words it does not mean that every one of us um, has got to sell what we've got 
What the, the, the principle in this story is this, that behind every single one whom God calls, there has to be sacrifice, there has to be a laying down of life. In one case, it may be entirely different to another. This is why the Lord said it, um, about, it is harder for a rich man to get into the kingdom of God than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. So the poor disciples were so astonished, they said, then who could be saved? But so would you. If the Lord had said to you, it is harder for... They got the point. It wasn't just a question of a rich man. Peter wasn't a rich man. Some of the other disciples weren't rich men. They were quite ordinary, poor men. But you see, um, the fact of the matter um, uh, is that um, they understood that the Lord was not just talking about money. Otherwise they wouldn't have said, who can be saved? They would have said, oh, well, then it's impossible for rich people to be saved. But they said, who then can be saved? They got the point. In other words, this particular young man, his hold was on his money and his possessions, his lands. Your hold may be on your family. Another person's hold may be on their career. Another person's hold may be on their pleasure. Another person's hold may just be on their own life. Who then can be saved? The only way you and I can be saved is by letting go of our life, just letting it go. Now, you will see here that that kind of sacrifice, sacrifice produces treasure in heaven. How do you produce treasure in heaven? By just living smug, contented, self-satisfied Christian lives down here? No, not at all. Treasure is produced in heaven by walking the way of the cross, denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following the Lord Jesus. Losing your life, as you lose it, treasure is produced in heaven, and something comes back, there is a return. I think that is very important. It is borne out in verse 21, where it says, chapter 19, verse 21, Go sell that which thou hast and give to the poor and thou shalt have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. And in verse 29, where when uh, Peter, very quick as usual, said uh, to the Lord, Lord, what about us? What about us when we've left our homes and our houses? And, and the Lord says, and everyone that hath left houses or brethren or sisters or father or mother or children, or lands, for my name's sake, shall receive a hundredfold, and shall inherit eternal life. Sacrifice produces treasure <coughs> in heaven. This is followed by a parable in um, chapter um, 20, from verse 1, to uh, verse 15, we had the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. Now, what is this all about? You remember what happened at nine o'clock in the morning, at the beginning, as, uh, as it were, of the day's uh, work, the Lord engaged certain men for one silver coin and sent them out. A bit later, at uh, 12, he engaged a few more, sent them out for the same price. 
At three o'clock in the afternoon, he engaged a few more and sent them out, and again a little later he sent out another few. Now, when they came back to get their wages, he started with the last lot that he had hired, and he gave them their coin. So the next lot watched and said, Ha-ha, now we're going to get more, but they only got one silver coin. The next lot thought, Well, we short to get more, surely. They only got the one coin. So they began to grumble. When the last lot who had worked the whole day through the heat of the day, they only got their one coin. Now, this seems very unjust, doesn't it? But the Lord says here, why shouldn't I? The master of the vineyard said, I engaged you on certain conditions. You accepted them, and therefore I'm paying you. Why do you grumble if I, if I hired others on the same conditions? That's my business, not yours. Well, what was the Lord teaching us? He's teaching us this. Sometimes a person comes to Christ late in life. They have never heard the gospel before, but they come to the Lord later in life, and then they feel, oh, I've wasted my life. I've just thrown it away. My dear friend, you do not have to despair at all. If you will only commit yourself to the Lord in the latter part of your life, then God will, will probably, at the end, in his own wisdom, pay you as much as those who've had a long life of service. Now, this may seem extraordinary to some others, but this is exactly what this teaches. It is not the length of time, but the spirit with which we serve the Lord that matters to the Lord. It's in the same way that um, there are those who've waited so long. You know, in the book of Revelation, the altar is lifted up and underneath are the martyrs. They say, how long, Lord? How long? And the altar goes back down and the Lord says to them, uh, wait, your number is not filled. See? They've waited for so long, for some of them. Perhaps something like 2,000 years they've waited. But there are still some entering in at the end. Now, this surely is what the Lord is trying to teach us. It's the spirit with which we serve the Lord that matters to the Lord. And that's what it means when it says, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. There are some folk who started off with the Lord years and years ago, and they know it all. And they've become crotchety and loveless, and legal. And my dear friend, there's someone else that comes in and they found the Lord and they're full of love and they devote themselves and they lay down their life. Something the other one's never done. And the last shall be first. And those who always put us all right and tell us, well, you know, so, 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 we know it and all this, they come last. Oh, what a tragedy it is when people speak in this big way. I'm old enough now. Everything's too elementary for me. I know it all. Come to me, I'll tell you. They may not say that, but that's the spirit with which everything is. You know, they're sort of like an information bureau. You know, they can put us all right. Everyone. Everyone can be put right by me. I, I know it all. I'm an old Christian. I've gone through it. That kind of thing. Oh, it's a devastating blight. It's like mildew and blasting, as it puts in the Old Testament. It's blight. And it only comes to those who are older in the Lord. It doesn't start with young ones. It's the older ones in the Lord. Now, the first will be the last, and the last will be first. In other words, why does the Lord say you've left your first love? It's the first love that God looks for. 
And it's the first love which, which, out of which springs sacrificial devotion and service. When the person's full of love for the Lord, they sacrifice <coughs> themselves willingly. There's no murmuring, there's no holding, but they sacrifice themselves willingly. And that's what this section is all about. It closes in verse 17 to 19 with the perfect example of sacrifice, the Lord Jesus himself in those two verses now from verse 20 of this chapter 20 to verse 34 we come to the last um, subdivision of this this last section of this subdivision characteristics of the kingdom of heaven and um, I have entitled it authority and position in the kingdom of heaven is based on sacrificial service. What does God want? What is the thing in God's mind that qualifies you and me for position and authority in the future kingdom, the kingdom that is coming? Well, we in this little section, we go right back to the first section in Matthew 18. It's all about true greatness. What is true greatness? Now, the Lord's estimate of true greatness is very, very different to this world. This time, he links true greatness with future position or future position and authority in the kingdom of God. In God's kingdom, Great spiritual character is directly related to great spiritual position and authority. And this is often quite different down here. You know, you have some petty little bureaucrat occupying a very influential position. But in the kingdom of God, there will be no petty bureaucrat. None whatsoever. There will be no petty characters in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God will be administered and staffed, if you will, for want of a better word, staffed by great characters. And those people haven't just been born with great characters. They have become partakers of the divine nature and it has been inborn by the Holy Spirit implanted by the Holy Spirit and then they've been trained and educated by the Holy Spirit through life down here. There will be no such thing as a petty character in any single position of authority and power in the kingdom of heaven. Now that's the explanation for why the Lord puts uh, us through so much down here, if we're willing. You see, we, as we've often said, if you want your uh, tribulation down here, you can have it. If you want to wait for it, you can wait for it. It's as simple as that. Uh, you can either weep later or weep now. Very simple. Some people will weep later when they find in the kingdom of God that they've just thrown away everything. But if you are prepared, let me put it clearly, the Christian life isn't just a matter of misery, I don't mean that. But what I mean is this, that if you once commit yourself to the Lord for his education and his discipline and his training with the kingdom in view, he will go to any length to produce great character. He will do any, I have seen him do things that have staggered me with people. Staggered me with people. So that I've almost thought if I were the Lord I wouldn't do that. Almost blasphemous, I'm being very honest. Thought, oh, can they bear it? Can they go through? 
But the Lord will push a young married couple. He'll push one brother, that sister. He'll, he'll take them and he'll put them through the most extraordinary trials where they would seem as if they will break up. But what's he doing? The Lord has future position and authority in his mind. And he is producing character for it. Oh, this idea that you just get saved, live a very happy little life, sing a few hymns, go to a few meetings, attend church, and then one day you are wafted away into the presence of God, and there you will sit on a throne with a crown on your head. It's ridiculous. Nonsensical. It has no foundation in truth at all. The fact of the matter is this, if God has saved you, you are saved. And you will remain saved. But there is a possibility of going through into the kingdom saved so as by fire. You go in a saved soul with nothing else. Nothing at all but your saved soul. Do you want to get into the kingdom like that? Well then, you commit yourself to the Lord. Don't you try to afflict yourself and do penance and all the rest. That's not the way at all. You just give yourself to the Lord and say, Lord, I want to come to the throne. I want to be a king. I want to wear the crown. I want to be with thee in the kingdom. I want to glorify thee. Then you'll find that the Holy Spirit himself will take hold of you and will start that process of education and discipline that means that you are on the way. Why does it say in the scripture, He scourgeth every son whom he receiveth? It is a sign of the love of God. The peculiar and particular love of God for a son. That he doesn't just let you have all the rope you want and say, go on, just do it. But he disciplines you and trains you. Oh, how important this whole matter is. But I must um, speed on. That's why this matter of sacrifice is so emphasized. For under God's sovereign will and order, all position and authority is based on sacrificial service. God is watching you and me. He watches the way we scrub a step. He watches the way we put out a chair. He watches the way we treat one another. He watches the way we steward. He watches the way we play. He watches the way we lead. He watches every single little thing. There is no job given to a Christian that God does not watch. And one day in the kingdom, it's no good you saying, well, Lord, I was never asked to speak on the platform. <coughs> he will say, but you were asked to make tea. Or you were asked to clean. Or you were asked to visit. Or you were asked to exercise hospitality. Or you were asked to do this or to do that. And it is the way that you've done that little insignificant job that is in the Lord's mind the key to whether you can, uh, can fulfill any position of authority in the kingdom which is to come. Nothing is menial with the Lord. Everything in his hand is training ground, training ground and material uh, for education. So it's no good saying, well, you know, I'm not made much of and I've not got many gifts. And The Lord doesn't judge like that. He says, one person has one talent. What are you doing with it? This person has two talents. What's he doing with it? This person has five. What is he doing? He doesn't say, because you have only one, you should have five. No, not at all. 
What are you doing with the little that you've got? Because you see, it is the sacrificial service of the child of God which paves the way for authority and position in the kingdom which is to come. God has no kings that lord it over people and are big in themselves and are sort of, well, now I am it. Listen to me. Listen to me. I've got it. You all just sit down. There's no such thing as that in the kingdom of God. All God's true kings are seen, uh, particularly in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the king of kings, is sacrificial service. He washed the feet of the disciples. He went out to them. All the time he was serving, 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 serving at the beck and the call of the people. Well, that's God's idea of kingship. It's altogether different to our idea of a big, powerful, strong-armed man who sort of smashes the table and says, it shall be done, and out jump men and do it. Just like that, our idea of power. And we say, oh, what a man. What a man. But God's idea of power isn't that at all. God's idea of power is something inward. It is an inward character. And that inward character leads in the end to spiritual position. Now that's why in this little section you've got Mary, a most human mother, who went into the presence of the Lord and fell on her knees. It always happens when someone's going to try and get something. She fell on her knees and she said, she waited, and the Lord said, yes. She said, Lord, when you come into your kingdom, mark it, absolute faith. When you come into your kingdom, may my two sons sit, one on the left, one on the right hand. And the Lord said, are they able to drink the cup that I drink? And they both piped up and said, yes. <laughs> and immediately the Lord said, and you will. And they both did. But he said, even though you drink the cup that I drink, it is not for me to say that you shall sit on my left or on my right hand. Now, just listen to what the Lord did say. Verse 26. It shall not... Oh, 25 of chapter 20. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. There you are. There's the key to it. In other words, what the Lord Jesus was saying is this. You want the position on my left and on my right? You'll get it by service. Sacrificial service. And the Lord himself is the example. He gave his life a ransom for many. Now, the last verses of chapter 20 are a beautiful e exemplifying of this spirit of sacrificial service. It is a beautiful story. The Lord was passing by with a great crowd around him, all chattering and talking. Perhaps they were discussing some theological point, I don't know, as people are wont to do. And on there was a chatter, 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 chatter. On the outside were two blind men. 
They had waited evidently perhaps as far as we know for days there for the Lord to pass by. They couldn't see. They couldn't see. They didn't know if the Lord was there. They only heard this chatter, chatter, chatter as everyone came near. The sound of a great crowd. And no doubt they asked someone, who is it? Who is it? Jesus of Nazareth. So they called out with all their strength. And you hear what the crowd did. This is just like some of us in the middle of a wonderful sort of, uh, you know, time of theological discussion. They cried, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. Just like us. Shush! Shush! What do you people? Shut up! We're having such a deep discussion. You're, you're interrupting us. We don't want the Lord interrupted here. We're just going to get a secret about, about the book of Obadiah. And you are, and you are breaking in with, with, with some shut up. Okay? We don't want you. We don't want to be bothered with you. Okay? And they were very wise. It says they cried out the more. <laughs> Lord, they said, have mercy on us, son of David. Jesus stopped and called them saying, what do you want me to do <coughs> for you? They said, Lord, let our eyes be opened. Now listen. And Jesus in pity. Now the word used there is a very strong word. Jesus in pity touched their eyes and immediately they received their sight. How unlike the crowd. There were all the disciples there, the twelve apostles, and all these other disciples of the Lord and others, other hangers-on. Not one of them had pity. Not one single one of them had pity on those two men. Jesus in pity. That's sacrificial service. Do you know you can be so theological that you can be as hard as an armoured tank so that you can go just absolutely through. You can have your conceptions about spiritual things that make you immune to what you should not be immune to. Sensitive to this world. It's a wonderful thing to see the Lord as he really is. In pity, he stopped. Now, there is the example of sacrificial service. That's the kind of thing that's the kind of character, that's the kind of spirit God will bring to the throne. He doesn't want people up there that have got it all up here. He wants us to have knowledge, full knowledge. He wants us to have a wisdom that this world knows nothing about, the wisdom of God. But he doesn't want it at the expense of the spirit of compassionate and sacrificial service. He wants everyone who administers the kingdom to have pity. The thing that makes the human heart tick. God doesn't want automatic, spiritual, automatic machines that he presses a few buttons and everything's done beautifully. Uh, some kind of human electronics. Sort of, it's all done in a moment. He doesn't want it. He wants people who breathe and think and feel and love, cry, well, that's the kind of thing the Lord here is after. So we see in these chapters, from chapter 18 right through to chapter 20, that it is not only the, through, the, the, through the cross Christ 
brings the kingdom of heaven to us and us to the kingdom of heaven. But we see that the cross is the principle of all service, all authority, and all position in that kingdom. And if you and I want to reach to that point, we can be in the kingdom and yet have no position. If we want to reach the, a place of real position, then we must know the principle of the cross in our lives. Well, now, for the last 20 minutes of our time, we'll move on to the next of the subdivisions. For chapter 21, verse 1, to uh, verse 39 of chapter 23. Now, in actual fact, this section, I think, is one of the most um, exciting, in, in some ways, the most exciting sections in this book, technically, anyway, at any rate. It is the most interesting uh, section. Uh, in it, we see more than any other part of the Gospel, according to Matthew, Matthew's skill in arranging material. Now, if you go home and read in a modern version from verse 1 of chapter 21 right through to the last verse of chapter 20, you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. It is the, the most extraordinary skill in his arrangement of material, so that step by step, stage by stage, he builds up something. You can feel the rising tension. You can absolutely feel it. It commences with the Lord's triumphal entry into Jerusalem, when they cut down the palm uh, leaves and boughs of trees and strew them on the, in front of him on the street and lay down their, their um, uh, cloaks upon the ground and they sit him upon the uh, ass and forward he goes. A tremendous tumult. That's how it begins. Then we are led through all the intrigues of the, of the leaders and authorities of the nation to, its, to the culmination in, I suppose, the most fiery message of denunciation ever preached in this world. I don't suppose anyone, not even Luther, has preached a message of such fiery denunciation as is contained in Matthew chapter 23. Uh, I read it, I think, calmly. But I think really it ought to be read in the most excited way. And I, I have no doubt the power of the thing, once really we, if we'd been there, must have been simply tremendous. Now, if you take uh, this, uh, this part from chapter 21, verse 1, I'd just like to point you out one or two uh, verses. Verse 15. When the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying to you? Then verse 23. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority. Verse 45. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. But when they tried to arrest him, they feared the multitudes because they held him to be a prophet. Chapter 22, verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and took counsel how to entangle him in his talk. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, 
We know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully and care for no man, for you do not regard the position of men. And then verse 23, <clears throat> the same day Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection and they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies, having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Verse 34, but when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, normally that would have pleased them no end, but when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they came together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Verse 45, uh, 46, And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him another question. What a battle. It's all over in a few days. A tremendous battle, full of intrigue, one after another, these various groups representing the leaders and authorities of the nation politically and religiously. They seek to ensnare and entangle the Lord. One after another, he silences them until finally he asks them a question in which they so lose face before the people that they dare not ask him another question for fear of the catastrophic consequences. Uh, as far as their pride and honour went. In this section, the Jewish people, as represented in their leaders, finally, and I want to make that very clear, that it was the Jewish, you see, this is where sometimes there's been, the Jews have been held, uh, I think, in a wrong way. Christians have treated the Jews unfairly. It, we must say this, the Jewish people as represented in their leaders finally rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. There were many, many Jews who would not have rejected the Lord Jesus Christ and many, of course, who became true believers. There was a remnant that was saved out of Israel. But as represented, the Jewish nation as represented by their leaders and authorities finally reject their king and messiah and the kingdom of heaven is taken from them uh, and opened for the first time fully to the Gentiles. Now if you take chapter 21 verse 43, here you've got the key to this whole section. Verse 43 of chapter 21, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation producing the fruits of it. Well, thank God for that, because all of you are here tonight and myself because of that. The kingdom of God was taken away from them and was given to a nation producing the fruits thereof. That's why in a few moments we come to the fig tree. There was no fruit on it, so the Lord blasted it. It was a symbol, it was a picture. Uh, the, the kingdom uh, will be given to a nation producing the fruits of it. My dear friend, let me say this here and now, that if Christendom doesn't produce the fruits, it will be as rejected as the Jewish people. Let me say that quite clearly, for it says so in Romans chapter 11. That if the wild olive branch that was grafted in does not continue in faith, then it will be cast out. No one thinks that just because Christendom has the name Christian, it represents anything in the eyes of God at all. 
And it seems to me that we are coming fast to the point. And uh, if we have time, I'll just take it up in one moment, when there may well be a turning back from the Gentile to the Jew. And a great ingathering of the Jewish people uh, into the covenant, the new covenant of God. Well, and then also, I want you to note another very interesting little thing. If you will <clears throat> look at 21, chapter 21, and verse 13. Verse 12, in some of your versions, some of the ancient authorities omit it, Jesus entered the temple of God. Of God. And then, verse 13, he said to them, it is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer. Now I want you to turn to chapter 23 and verse 38. This is a most extraordinary change of pronoun. Behold, your house is left you desolate. It's the temple. It's not your uh, home. <laughs> your house. No longer my house. No longer the Lord's house. No longer the house of God. Your house is left you desolate. In the New English Bible it puts it quite clearly because it's a little ambiguous in some of the, uh, in some of the translations. It says, look, look, there is your temple forsaken by God. Your temple. Do you know that in the whole of Scripture God never called the tabernacle or the temple yours? Never! In the same way that he never called it your church. Well, some of the ministers that say, my church. <laughs> never, never, never. It's his church. It's the only but there comes a point when the Lord says, your church. You won't have anything to do with it anymore. Not mine. Nothing to do with me. Your church. Left to you. Your temple. Left to you. God's forsaken it. And then you will notice that in chapter 24, verse 1, Jesus left the temple. It's an extraordinary thing. He never set foot in it again, except for the final judgment. He left the temple. It was God turning his back upon his own house and going out. Same thing is going to happen in the church, of course, at the end when the man of sin sits in the house, the temple of God, giving himself out as God. When that happens, God will say, your house is left to you desolate. Well, now, <clears throat> one other little point I would like to say in the closing verses of this division in chapter 23 from verse 37 to 39, um, the door is finally closed to the Jewish nation. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, killing the prophets and stoning those who are sent to you. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. Behold, your house is forsaken and desolate. But listen, for I tell you, you will not See me again until you say, isn't that <coughs> beautiful? Until you say, blessed be he who comes in the name of the Lord. There is a hint of a final Jewish ingathering. Isn't that marvellous? 
Well, to me it is, anyway. It may not thrill you, but it just thrills me no end. There's just that hint. As the door is closed, the mercy of God, as it were, just gives a hint. Until you say, Blessed be he who comes in the name of the Lord. It, to me, it's a hint that at the very end, something's going to happen in Israel. Something's going to happen in Israel. And there's going to be somehow a turning to God so that when the Lord Jesus' feet touch the Mount of Olives as it is forecast and predicted in Scripture, there will be a great turning to the Lord. Is that or is it not so? I am very careful about uh, some people's ideas of a Jewish future. But um, I would like to read to you in Romans chapter 11. In Romans chapter 11 and verse 13, these words. Well, I, I'm going to read, I think, from verse 11. I say then, did they stumble that they might fall? God forbid. But by their fall, that is the Jewish people's fall, salvation has come unto the Gentiles to provoke the Jews to jealousy. Now if their fall is the riches of the world and their loss, the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? There's a hint there that something's going to happen one day. But I speak to you that the Gentiles inasmuch then as I am the apostle of the Gentiles, I glorify my ministry. For if the casting away of the Jewish nation is the reconciling of the world, what shall the receiving of the Jewish nation be? But life from the dead. Life from the dead. Verse um, uh, uh, 23. And they also, if they continue not in their unbelief, that is the Jewish people, shall be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. Then it goes on and says in the end, finally all Israel shall be saved. Well now, I think that is rather wonderful. I am not saying there's going to be a separate future for the Jewish people, not at all. What I am saying is this, that at the end of the age there's going to be, I believe, a great turning to the Lord Jesus Christ of the Jewish people, especially the Israeli people. And that that will be if their casting away was the reconciliation of the world. What will their receiving be when they come back to God? Oh, surely it will be glory. Absolute glory. And they will no longer be Jews. As you and I are no longer Gentile. For if we are in Christ, we are the new man in which there is neither Jew nor Gentile. Well now, just we'll deal with the first two sections, shall we, of this, and then leave it to our next study. <clears throat> the first one in chapter 21, we've covered just the general thing about this section. <clears throat> From verse 1 to 11 is the king's triumphal entry into Jerusalem. This was the fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy. You will find it in Zechariah 9, verse 9, where it says, Behold your king, and uh, cometh riding um, uh, on a colt the foal of an ass. Um, it was the direct fulfillment of Zechariah's uh, prophecy.
Now, it is quite probable that a large part of the crowd who uh, cut down the palm branches and uh, tree branches and so on and strewed, strewed the road with them and, and laid down their cloaks and so on were, in fact, Galileans up for the Passover. You see, when you start with this chapter 21, you are in the last week of the Lord's life. Now, although we have from chapter 21 right through to chapter 28, we are in the last week. We have traversed the whole life of our Lord. And we have now entered upon the last week or two of his life. And so, you see, these folk were up, ready, in preparation for the coming Passover. Over. And it's quite possible that many of them were Galileans. The Lord was very, very popular in Galilee. Most of his ministry had been in Galilee. And somehow or other the Galileans were far less conservative and less bound to legalism uh, um, than the Judeans. They were much more free. Well, now that's one point. Certainly, we do know that the whole city was stirred. For in verse 10 it says... And when he entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth. So this section begins with the triumphal entry of the king. Now remember, the prophecy did not say, Behold your saviour, although the word is later used. Um, it is, Behold your king. And this is the whole point of the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. It was the king coming. Not a human king, but God's king. God's messianic king. God's king and Messiah was coming into the city of God and to the temple of God. That's the whole point of what we call the triumphal entry of the Lord Jesus Christ into Jerusalem. It was the king who was coming to his own. He came unto his own, and they that were his own received him not. The next section from verse 12 to verse 17, I have entitled The Cleansing of the Temple and the Genuine Meeting of Human Need. Now, there was, you see, all this commerce that was going on in the temple. It's very interesting. Commerce was forbidden in the temple. But what had happened was that um, the temple had become, because it was the, the, the sort of pivot of the nation's life, the focal point of everything, the temple had become a very real commercial proposition. It was a very lucrative business. Some people feathered and lined their nests very, very well from business done within the temple because there were all the time pilgrims, pilgrims, pilgrims. There were all the time people coming to offer up offerings, burnt offerings, peace offerings, sin offerings, trespass offerings, all the time. So, of course, these people had their stalls. They had made quite a part of the temple precincts into an open market, rather like Kingston Market or, or Petticoat Lane. They'd made all these stalls all round with little sort of things above it and seats behind. There were money changers. There were sellers of oxen. Think of them, great big creatures tethered up, not just one or two, but many. And sheep galore, because it was only the rich people that could buy an, uh, uh, an ox, a bullock. So there were many more sheep, because that was the more normal middle-class offering. And then, of course, there were pigeons stacked 
for yards in every direction in little sort of um, cages, crammed in. The poor people, of course, always bought pigeons. They couldn't afford to buy um, uh, an ox, and they couldn't b uh, uh, afford to buy um, um, a sheep. So they bought pigeons. And there they all were. Can you imagine the cooing, the clucking, the, the lowing, the bleating, the whole lot of it? And there were the old money changers there. They were ready to change your money so that you had the right money to pay the priest, the right money, and, of course, so that you didn't part with too much in the treasury. You didn't want to part with great shekels. You only wanted to throw in a few coins if necessary, so they were there to, to help you. It was a well-oiled industry. And, uh, and, 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 and had a very real income. Now, it was over this that we see the fury of Christ. Now, I believe that this picture of the anger of the Lord Jesus is a picture that you and I as Christians do well to stop and think about. It shocks a lot of sentimental ideas about our Lord. You know, I'm quite sure that some people thought the Lord did this all in a very, very delicate and refined way. But the picture you get if you read through the different Gospels is one of, sh of shock. Absolute shock. It's as if the Lord went berserk. Calmly, quietly, he made a whip of cord. Then he let fly. He got a corner of a table and he just flung it up. Kicked over the stool. Threw over the money. Untied the oxen. Let out the sheep. Can you imagine it? <laughs> Our Lord. Just imagine it for a moment. The pandemonium, the commotion. There must have been oxen lowing and bellowing. Sheep bleating and running. You know what silly things sheep are? Running all over the place, I suppose. I can quite imagine that some dignified priest got tripped up over some sheep. <laughs> Pigeons flew everywhere. It must have been the most extraordinary sight. And can you see those money changers when their, their money was flung all over the place? It says he scattered their money. I could just see them trying to gather it all up. Oxen coming across, sheep coming across, people coming across, while they were trying to get the money, and then the Lord coming up behind them with a, with a whip of cords, driving them out. What a scene. The poor old high priest was on his up that way, uh, uh, was on his way up that day. He must have had the shock of his life as he saw all this coming out. Now, you see, it's good for us to think for a while. It wasn't just controlled anger. I am not saying the Lord lost his temper. Not one for one single moment am I suggesting that. But it was the fury of God. And in these days in the 20th century, it does us good to sit down and recognize that God has got a fury. The wrath of God revealed against all ungodliness and sin. There is such a thing as the wrath of God. It's absolutely righteous and therefore fearful in the extreme. Fearful in the extreme. When temper is let, it makes you feel sick. But when you see righteous fury, it makes you tremble to the foundations of your being. Because you know it is so right. 
You note the Lord's words. It is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer. You've made it a den of thieves. Poor old money lenders and all the rest of it. Money changers. A den of thieves. It's true. They were living on their brothers and sisters. And we know from uh, a number of sources that quite a lot of the animals that were sold were blemished and the priests had been paid to let through the blemished creatures contrary to the law so that it was an insult to God. The whole thing was a lucrative commercial proposition. And that day when the Lord came into Jerusalem and went to the temple and turned it upside down for the first time the whole thing was driven out of the temple. Now, on the other side, you get something very, very interesting. In contrast to that, for one single moment, the temple recaptured its former glory. Listen to what it says so simply and so beautifully. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. For one moment, the temple recaptured its original glory. What God had intended that place to be, a place of healing, a place of love, a place of service, a place of worship, a place of instruction, a place where God was known and seen and the salvation of God was tasted. For just a few brief hours it became that when the Lord had driven all these foreign and alien things out of it. Of course, this has happened again and again in church history. Wycliffe did it for us in England. He drove out all those feathered friends of ours that had cluttered up and come to roost in the church. And Luther did it on the continent. And Huss and others. It's happened again and again and again in church history. However, we're just dealing with this. Uh, you've got this wonderful contrast. The Lord meeting people in genuine need. The last little section is to do with the fig tree. And I have heard again and again, from verse uh, 15 to 22, I've heard people, some very silly things said about the fig tree. I don't know if you have. People have come to me and said, I can't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Fancy, fancy withering a fig tree. What a, what a terrible thing to do just because he was irritated. Just because he was hungry, the Lord never withered a fig tree just because he was hungry. Because he was irritated with it. He came to it and he was hungry and he couldn't find any food on it. In a fit of irritation, he blasted it. Lord didn't do that. Why, the Lord could have created bread. He'd fed 5,000 men alone and 4,000 another day. He could have created out of nothing if he'd wanted to. It was a sign. And the fig tree was a symbol, one of the two greatest symbols used in the Bible, of the covenant people of God. The vine was one, the fig tree was the other. The fig tree was a symbol of the Jewish people, the covenant people of God. And when he came to it, there was no fruit on it. And he cursed it, and immediately it withered. What was it a sign of? It was a sign of what was happening that very moment in the temple. The king had come to his temple, to his city, to his temple, and he found no fruit. 
And they were on the very threshold of the judgment of God. A little later we had that in this section when the Lord denounces the authorities and leaders of the nation and says, your house is left desolate, forsaken. Oh dear child of God, may you and I be faithful right through to the end. We need sometimes the fire of God which clears out of the church all those things that have cluttered it up, the debris and the, and the rubbish that have come in through tradition and through the ages and he's just sweeping out. We need more. We need to be so faithful that when the end comes as it will do and Christendom becomes the very tool of of, of the man of sin and of Satan, we may be faithful and sensitive to the Lord and may follow the Lamb whithersoever he goes. May the Lord just help us then. Shall we pray? Dear Lord Jesus, we ask thee that thou wouldst take thy word that we've been studying together this evening and make it live to our hearts, Lord. We don't necessarily all understand it, but, oh, dear Lord, help us, we pray, to get something from this time. And, dear Lord, we do thank thee that we have received thee as our Lord and Saviour. Oh, we thank thee for this, Lord, and we pray together that thou wouldst lead us all on and prepare us, Lord, for that kingdom. We ask it in thine own precious name. Amen. Amen.